Well, I don't know about anyone else watching right now, but I have always had this incredible, intense fascination with the book of Revelation and, and, and particularly the end, the end times and the idea of the end times and studying the end times. And when I say always, I really do mean always. Like from the time I was a little kid, I can remember as a kid growing up in church, sitting with my parents in church. And, and whenever the, the sermon, that whenever the grown-up sermon would get a little bit you know, dull or boring or I just couldn't pay attention, my mom would hand me her Bible and say, here, just read, read your Bible, read, read my Bible. You can read whatever you want. And I would always immediately turn to Revelation. And I, I'll tell you exactly why I turned to Revelation, because Revelation was awesome as a kid, like dragons and bulls and trumpets and battles and beasts and all. I mean, like, Revelation was the most fascinating, crazy, intense, I don't understand any of it, but it's got a lot of cool stuff going on. I wanted to be reading Revelation. And so, so I remember as a kid, I read Revelation like almost every Sunday at some point, like I would be reading some portion of Revelation and I've always been kind of fascinated. And unfortunately, when you're a kid who's fascinated with the end times and you grow up in a church that's like pe kind of Pentecostal and fairly traditional, you learn about some things a little too too early, a little, a little before you're actually ready to learn about them. And so I remember being like seven or eight years old and I learned about the rapture and I learned, learned about the rapture. And, and, and if you you're not familiar with the term is the it's the idea the rapture is the idea that one day Christ will return and will snatch away the church and the true Christ followers to meet him in the air in or in or in heaven at some point before his his second coming um, to, to rule and reign on the earth. So I, so I learned about that when I was like seven or eight years old. And anyway, so when, you're, when you're young and you have an active imagination and you learn about an idea that your family, that your family and your parents could very literally be snatched away, be snatched away like a thief in the night by someone like a thief in the night, that can play tricks on your brain, right? Like, like that can play some big tricks on your brain. And so I remember my family would always go to bed and, I, and I, I would go to bed and my sister would go to bed and my parents would go to bed and I would always fall asleep with my parents still awake, still watching TV in their room. And so I would fall asleep with the sound of a TV. And then, you know, as a seven or eight year old kid, sometimes you wake up in the middle of the night and when I would wake up in the middle of the night, the sound of the TV was gone. And in my head, after learning about the rapture, that could only mean one thing. Oh no, my parents might have been raptured. The TV sound is gone. And I don't know why that triggered in my brain, but, but that's what I thought. And so I remember as a seven or eight year old kid having, trying to figure out, well, how do I sneak into my parents' room to figure out if my parents are still on the earth? And at the same time, if they are still on the earth, I don't want to wake them up. And so you end up being the kid who's standing over your parents when they wake up and they're freaked out. And, 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 and it, it's just a horrible, wonderful experience. And so that's, that, was, that was a good portion of my childhood. Uh, side note to parents, sometimes you're going to wake up with your children staring over and you never know. They may have some deep eschatological concerns. And so it, 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 it's a great thing. But here's the thing. I, it's, I, I have always been fascinated, but at the same time, I've always been a little apprehensive to teach and preach through the book of Revelation because it's one thing to be interested in Revelation. It's a whole other thing to understand Revelation. It's, a, it's one thing to be interested, it's to be a kid, to be a seven-year-old who likes to read about the beasts and, and the dragons and all the stuff that's happening in, in Revelation and all the locusts and all that. I mean, like, like to, to want to read about all of that. To be interested in is one thing, but to understand it is a whole different thing because let's be honest, Revelation is a lot to take in and it raises a lot of great questions and it raises some ridiculous questions 
all at the same time. And it's a whole different level to understand revelation and how to live it out in relation to whatever may be happening in the world at any given moment, which leads us to 2020, which leads us to two years ago and the last two years and everything that we have found ourselves experiencing across the world. Like I know a whole lot has happened in the last two years and I don't know it's been a whole two years ago at this point and a lot has happened since the point and we have, we've all have short attention spans, but does anyone remember the spring of 2020 and the whole year of 2020 and how crazy everything was and the thought like, could this be could this be the, the, the end times? Could this be the end times? We had an entire continent on fire with Australian ra wildfires raging for more than a month. I mean, we had assassinations of military leaders. We had COVID hit the world and worldwide shutdowns and lockdowns and restrictions and all of that amidst the lockdowns. The government, the U.S. government, this is the, the U.S. government de declassified material that seemed to confirm the existence of aliens. No big deal, right? Like that didn't even make the front page of the news on that day because there was so so much other crazy stuff happening. Like you had, you had um, if you want real biblical stuff, there were invasions of locusts in different nations around the world where like you could not see seven story buildings because they were entirely covered with locusts and, and entire cities were covered with locusts. If you like, you, you had social and racial division and, and the resulting civil unrest, you had venom caterpillars. A lot of us don't even remember that like, cause this was like, oh, I guess that happened too. There were venom caterpillars who would spit dangerous venom that poisonous venom. You had a ridiculous election cycle. You had a touring, appearing, and disappearing metallic monolith. Anybody remember that? Where it would just show up in random spots around the world, and you're like, what's that? Like, like, like that was happening. And to cap off 2020, the, we ended the year with the first appearance of the Christmas star in 800 years, which is almost like, almost like God just messing with us, going like, what I wonder what they'll think if I show like if we show them the Christmas star after all of the crazy stuff that's got like what was going on and after seeing all of that craziness you didn't have to be all that religious to think hey I wonder if I like right like I even remember after the murder hornets and the venom caterpillars I remember talking with Pastor Devin one day and going like we were both kind of like going, like, is, is there anyone who kind of like looks at all this and is like a really credible stu like studier of all this stuff and is saying like, hey, this is, and we both kind of just went like, ah, shrug, I, I, I don't know. Like all of us, it, we, are, we are living in a time like none of us have ever seen before. We are all living in a time like none of us have ever seen before. And a lot of us are maybe asking some questions about what we've seen play out and what we're still seeing play out on the world stage. And since we're asking some big questions, it's time for us to turn to the answer, to turn to the Word of God for some even bigger answers. And so for a few weeks, we're going to study Revelation to better understand this incredible book of the Bible, to help us better understand our world, and to help us ultimately better understand the God of the beginning and the end, the God who is God from the beginning and the God who is, will still be God at the end. And as we talk about finding a beginning in the story of the end, here's the biggest single thing that I hope we can all remember as we, as we begin this study of this incredible book called Revelation. Revelation's primary goal isn't to inform us about what's to come. Right? Revelation's primary goal isn't to inform us about what's to come. In other words, its goal isn't to give us history in advance. Now, sometimes that, that may happen, and there's times I believe that that does happen. But, it, I, but the important thing to understand is that that's not the primary goal 
of Revelation. Revelation's primary goal isn't to inform us about what's to come. Revelation's primary goal is to remind us of who came before everything to come and who will be standing after everything to come. That You want to know what Revelation is ultimately all about? Revelation is ultimately all about God. Revelation is ultimately all about Jesus. Revelation is ultimately all about the victory that has been won and will be won by our Heavenly Father, by Jesus Christ, by the Holy Spirit, alive and active in the world and through the world and like and, and, and for the world. That Jesus has won a victory for us, that Jesus will be victorious at the end of it, that it's not about primarily about what is to come. It's not informing us about what is to come. It's reminding us of who was before everything that will come and who will be standing after everything that is to come. You want to find a new beginning? Amazingly, the beginning is found right here at the end, that amidst the uncertainty of the world that we live in, there is one certainty, that in the middle of all the guesses and interpretations of what various things mean and what things will look like and how things might play out, there is one thing we know exactly how it will play out, that the one who was there from the very beginning will be the one on the throne at the end. You want, to, like, you want to know where we find our beginning? We find our beginning in, tr in placing our trust in that the one who was there at the beginning will be the one reigning supreme at the end. Revelation is ultimately about God, about Jesus, about the Holy Spirit, about the victory that God has won and the victory that God will win, that God is supreme, that God is the ultimate authority over everything. And so today, and for the next few weeks, we're going to dive into this book called Revelation. And today we're going to start from the beginning and the end of Revelation, because if we're going to talk about the beginning in the end, let's talk about the beginning and the end of the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter one, at the very beginning, here's what we're told. This is a revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the events that must soon take place. He sent an angel to present the revelation to his servant, John, who faithfully reported everything he saw. This is his report of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. God blesses the one who reads the words of this prophecy to the church, and he blesses all who listen to its message and obey what it says for the time is near. Now, if you paid attention to what was on screen, you know that the word revelation, as we read it, was bolded and highlighted in a different color. It says this, this is a revelation from Jesus Christ. Now, that word revelation, when, when we read the word revelation in our English language, we, we, we would translate revelation as the unveiling. But the actual Greek word for that's translated as revelation comes from the Greek word apocalypsis. Apocalypsis, which you might guess would more closely translate to our English word apocalypse. Apocalypse. And, and, and as we do this, we have to actually understand something really big here. At the beginning of the book of Revelation, right up front at the beginning of this incredible book, the author identifies himself as John, most likely the John that was one of Jesus's 12 disciples, most likely the John that identified himself as the disciple that Jesus loved. Like this was a guy who had spent time with Jesus, had followed Jesus. He now found himself in exile because he lived a life that refused to not follow Jesus. He was going to follow Jesus forever. And he had now had been given a revelation or an apocalypse of the end time. So he identifies himself as John, but he also identifies the type of letter, the type of book this is, the literary style of this book, that Revelation is an apocalyptic book. 
Now, we hear apocalypse and we think, oh, yeah, it's about the battle that's going to end the world. It's about, it's about the end times. It's like all, all about that. That the apocalypse is actually a literary, literary style. And apocalypse is a literary style in the same way that biblical history is a style, that biblical poetry is a style, that prophetic writing is, is a style, and that law was a style. And it's important to understand different styles because you don't want to read law like poetry and you don't want to read poetry like law. You don't want to read prophecy like poetry and you don't want to read poetry like biblical history, that it's important to understand the, the, the style that we're about to read. And because very few of us ever spend a lot of time really reading apocalyptic styles, there are a few important things for us to understand about apocalyptic writing in the Bible and, and throughout the Bible and through the ancient world to help us understand what type of a document, what type of book we are about to read. Now, there are a few things to understand that are true about every apocalyptic writing, including the book of Revelation. Here's the five things that are true about every apocalyptic style. It's intensely symbolic intensely symbolic, that Daniel had his four beasts coming up out of the water and statues of different materials. John has his bowls and trumpets, his locusts with heads like lions, among other things. These are intensely symbolic. For Daniel, the four beasts are widely believed to have prophetically symbolized the four empires that would arise to rule the known world. And for John, for John's prophecy in Revelation, we don't necessarily know yet what much of the symbolism is or, or what things are symbolic of. So it's intense, this apocalyptic literature, it's intensely symbolic. Number two is it's, it's, it's known for its veiled criticism of power. You might even really want to say thinly veiled criticism of power. See, John in Revelation continually references Babylon references Babylon. Babylon, interestingly enough, was an empire that had been toppled 600 years before John would write Revelation. And so is John talking about the actual empire of Babylon that didn't even exist and hadn't existed for 600 years? No. So the question becomes, well, what empire existed while John wrote Revelation that closely resembled the practices and cultural standards of Babylon and stood against the chosen people of God in a way that Babylon did when Babylon was in power? This one is pretty easy to understand because, again, it's very thinly veiled. Babylon equals Rome. Babylon equals Rome. It, like Babylon is Rome. It, 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 it may also be something in the future, but Babylon is Rome. And so when someone in, in John's writing, when someone in heaven or an angel or the whole world cries out against Babylon, they are crying out against the trials and persecution and injustices that Rome has made common practice throughout the Roman world. Okay, so it's known for its being intensely symbolic. It's known for its veiled criticism of power. Apocalyptic writing is also known for its trials and tribulations. For its trials and tribulations, in every apocalyptic writing, there are trials and tribulations, and the author or the prophet is either speaking out against the systems and governments that cause the trials and tribulations for the people of God, or or he's writing that they will receive judgment from God in the forms of trials and tribulations for what they have done to the people of God. In Daniel's visions, these were the Babylonians and the Persians. In intertestamental times, this was the Greeks. And for John and the early Christians, this was Rome and Nero and Domitian and the, and the, and the intense persecution of the early church. And so there's these trials and tribulations that are, go, that are going on, and the writers are trying to help the, the people make sense of what is going on and remind them that there is someone above what they are currently experiencing. There is a God who is 
is in control of their trials over their trials and their tribulations. The fourth thing that apocalyptic literature is known for is eternal consequence. That what you do and what you choose while you're facing trials and trouble has eternal consequence. That to embrace the world and systems of injustice, systems of violence, systems of oppression, systems in people that stand against the things of God to embrace the morality of this world is to choose an eternity separated from God, that in the face of your trials, you make a decision and I make a decision and every one of us will make decisions about who we will align with, where we will align our hearts, what we will, where we will align our values, and what we choose in the face of the trials and the tribulation, the trouble of life, will determine where we will spend eternity. And the idea here is simply this, that those who stay faithful to God and are faithful witnesses receive the eternal reward of being in the presence and perfection of God forever, and those who don't well, they don't get that reward. They get something else. And then this one might be the biggest piece to understand. It's what I would call here and now and then and there. Here and now and then and there. In other words, there's an idea of a present meaning and a future meaning. Now, some of you are like, wait, wait, wait. When we talk about Babylon, we assume he's talking about a future empire. That's the whole idea that there is a here and now to the people that he was writing here and now, symbolic, uh, like, you know, critical of power, critical of power, veiled criticism of power, all this kind of stuff. There's, there's the trials and tribulations they're facing right now. There's the here and now, and there's a then and there. There's an off in the future. There's a someday. This is what we will all experience. So is Revelation a book about Rome or about a future empire yet to come? Yes. Is the mark of the beast 666 about Nero or Domitian or about something to come in the future? Yes. Is our trials referring to the persecution of the early church under Roman rule, or they are, are they about a persecution, persecution still to come? Yes. Is destruction and fall of Babylon something that happened when Rome fell, or is it something still to come? Yes. There is always a here and now and a then and there aspect of every bit of apocalyptic literature. Now, I understand that is a lot of teaching and a lot of explanation and a lot of background, but that's incredibly important for us to understand as we dive into an attempt to understand the meaning and the truth behind this incredible book of Revelation. And with that understanding of all of that background, here's the very first thing John wanted to reveal to us. So this letter is from John to the seven churches in the province of Asia. Grace and peace to you from the one who is, who always was, and who is still to come, from the sevenfold spirit before his throne and from Jesus Christ. He is the faithful witness to these things, the first to rise from the dead, and the ruler of all the kings of the world. Now here's the, here's the thing. Who sends greetings of grace and peace? The, the, the initial greeting is, here's the message. It's grace and peace to you. Grace and peace to you. And who sends the meeting, meet these message of grace and peace? It's not John as much as John loves and cares for these people. God the Father sends a message of grace and peace. The Holy Spirit sends a message of grace and peace. Jesus the Son sends a message of grace and peace. God the Father, the one who is, who always was, and who is still to come. God the Spirit, referred to as the sevenfold Spirit of God. God the Son, Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the first to rise from the dead, the King over kings. They send this incredible message and what they're, that's about to reveal what is to come, what is happening, who is in control over what is happening. They're sending this incredible message, this incredible revelation. And what we're about to read in so much of Revelation is incredibly troubling. And at the beginning of a message that could be incredibly troubling, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit say to the people, grace and 
peace. And I think this is incredibly important for us to understand as we read Revelation. God sent the church this troubling message to bring them grace and peace. God sent this message that could have been potentially incredibly troubling, that could bring incredibly intense fear and anxiety and worry and doubt, and like, oh my gosh, what are we going to do? And God sent this message not to cause fear, not to cause anxiety, not to cause worry, not to cause doubt, not to cause us to freak out, but God sent us this message to bring us grace, to make us aware of his grace, and to make us aware of his peace. This revelation is not meant to cause you fear, not meant to cause you worry, not meant to cause you anxiety. It's meant to bring you peace and remind you of my grace, which should make us realize something, that while revelation is full of trouble, revelation isn't about the trouble. That while life is full of trouble, life isn't about the trouble. It's about something and someone above and beyond all of that trouble. It's about someone greater and about someone better. Someone who is above everything and someone who is over and in control of everything that you will face. And I just feel like for, for some of us right now, we need to be reminded that in the middle of your life and your trouble and your fear and your anxiety and your worry and your everything, I believe God wants to bring you grace and peace. For some of you, you have looked at life and looked at the craziness of our world for the last two years, and maybe you have looked at the craziness of your life for more than just the last two years, and you and all you see is the trouble, is the trouble, is the trouble, is the trouble, is the worry, is the anxiety, is the fear, and, 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 and there's been a fear that has overtaken you. There's been an anxiety that has overtaken you. There's been worry that has overtaken you, and I just want to let you know that in the middle of that, before we get to all of that, God has spoken grace and peace to you. God has spoken grace and peace over your fear, over your worry, over your anxiety, over your doubt. He is the God of grace and peace. He is not the God of trouble. He is the God of grace and peace, and he wants to be the God of grace and peace to you right now. Now, John would go on. All glory to him who loves and has freed us from, the, from our sins by shedding his blood for us. He has made us a kingdom of priests for God his Father. All glory and all honor, or sorry, all glory and power to him forever and ever. Amen. Look, he comes with the clouds of heaven and everyone will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the nations of the world will mourn for him. Yes, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord God. I am the one who is, who always was, and who is still to come, the Almighty One. And then a few verses later, John would go on he said, to tell us his reaction. He says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as if I were dead. But he laid his right hand on me and said, don't be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I died, but look, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and the grave. Don't be afraid. Jesus spoke to John, said, don't be afraid. Not because what you're about to see isn't terrifying. It is. But don't be afraid because in the middle of what's about to be terrifying, I am with you. In the middle of the trouble, I am present with you. And I have overcome all of the trouble. I have overcome all of the trials. I have overcome all of the tribulation. I have overcome all of the trouble that you will ever face. And I am the one who is here to bring you grace and peace. And I, am not meant to ins I have not meant this to instill fear. I have meant to this to instill confidence that I am with you and I bring grace and peace.
See, God wants us to know at the very beginning, he is the beginning and the end before the end begins. He's the beginning and the end before the end begins. He is the one who has reigned supreme from the very beginning. In fact, he is the beginning, that Jesus is the beginning and the source of everything in life, and he's the source of new life because he died on the cross and rose from the dead to bring you life, that he is the beginning because he's alive forever. He's alive forever because in his death and resurrection, he took back the keys of death and the grave. He's the reason we can know the beginning. He's the reason we can know our Heavenly Father who is our beginning. And since the beginning, God the Father has had a singular plan and purpose in mind to bring about the renewal of everything that life and sin has broken, everything that is broken in our world, which is everything, that he has had a singular plan and a singular purpose and a singular person in mind to bring about the renewal of all things. And his name is Jesus, the sinless son of God, who died for my sin, who died for your sin and rose from the dead, bringing resurrection and life for you and for me. And in the end, he is about to bring about the healing for the entirety of creation. He's your beginning. He's my beginning. And that's what we learn at the beginning of Revelation. That while, we, that while what we're about to read over the next few weeks may fill us with fear and may, could, could be terrifying and could fill us with worry and anxiety and could fill us with a whole bunch of questions where we just need to get to the answers and we just need to figure out what this means and what this means and what this means and how will we know when it's coming? Jesus says, I'm the one who overcame everything. I'm the beginning, I'm the end, I'm your beginning, I'm your end. I was around before anything else began. I've been the plan for the, the entire time. I will be standing when it, all, when, it all, when it all ends. And until it ends, you can place your trust in me because I am the God of grace and peace. And if that wasn't enough, just to flip the beginning of our series on its head, let's, let's fast forward to the end of Revelation, Revelation chapter 21. Here's the final, the final revelation of John. It says this, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. This, after, after all the battles, after all the trials, after all the tribulations, after all of the stuff that was to come in Revelation, here's what happens at the, at the end. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the old heaven and the old earth had disappeared, and the sea was also gone. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven like a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, Look! God's home is now among his people. Isn't that just a beautiful picture, by the way? Look, God's home is now among his people. There's no more heaven and earth. There's just God with his people on the earth. Look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them and they will be his people. God himself will be with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things are gone forever. And the one sitting on the throne said, look, I am making everything, everything new. And then he said to me, write this down for what I tell you is trustworthy and true. And he also said, it is finished. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To all who are thirsty, I will give freely from the springs of the water of life. All who are victorious will inherit all these blessings and I will be their God and they will be my children. Verse 22 tells us this, I saw no temple in the city, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. And the city has no need of sun or moon, for the glory of God illuminates the city and the Lamb is its light. The nations will walk in its light and the kings of the world will enter the city in all their glory. Its gates will never be closed at the end of the day because there is no night 
there. And the na- and all the nations will bring their glory and honor into the city. So here's the bottom line. You read all that and you're like, man, it's a beautiful picture. Bottom line, you want to know why there's a beginning to be found in the end? It's simply this. Our God is the beginning before our beginning. And he's the one who will be standing supreme after our world's end. Isn't that beautiful? You want to know why there's a a beginning found for us in the story of the end? It's because our God is the beginning before our beginning. And he's the one who will still be standing after our world ends. He's he's the God who was God God before our beginning, before you breathed your first breath, before you had any idea that life was full of trouble. He was God before all of that. He's the God who will be God and will be standing supreme and will be sitting on the throne and will be ruling the world when our world ends and when creation is, is renewed by him. And he will be the God who is God of everything in between. He's the God on your best day. He's God on your worst day. He's God on the most trouble that you have. He's God on the most trouble of, of the, the most trouble that you have inwardly. He's God when your thoughts are out of control. He's God when your relationships are out of control. He's God when your job and your career don't seem to make sense. He's God over all of that. He's God from the beginning to the end. He's God before the beginning. And he will be God after our world ends. Before the trial and the tribulation and trouble and testing, God was. That's the message of Revelation 1. In the middle of the trial, the tribulation, the trouble, and the testing, God is. That's the message of everything from Revelation chapter 2 to Revelation verse 20. And at the end in Revelation 21 and 22, after the trial, the tribulation, the trouble, and the testing, God will be. And God will make all things new, including me, including you. So at the beginning of Revelation, Jesus is on the throne. Jesus has won. Jesus died for my sin and your sin, and he rose from the dead, giving new life for me and new life for you. Jesus is victorious. At the end of Revelation, Jesus is on the throne. Jesus has won. Jesus is victorious over every enemy, over every battle, over every trial, over every conflict. Jesus is victorious, and every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess, Jesus, the Lamb of God, is Lord of all, and every song will be holy, 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 is the Lord God Almighty. Holy, holy, holy is the Lamb who was slain. And the only thing that will have changed is that everyone will know it and acknowledge it. The only thing that changes from today and from Revelation chapter 1 to Revelation chapter 21 is that everyone will know it and everyone will acknowledge that Jesus is Lord. And everyone will acknowledge that holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And every tongue will confess that Jesus, the Lamb of God, is Lord over all. The only thing that will have changed is that everyone will realize it. And until then, the good news for you and I, until then, I get to choose it, and you get to choose to acknowledge that. You get to choose to acknowledge that reality. You get to choose to acknowledge the reality by faith before everyone eventually acknowledges it by sight. Our God is the beginning before our beginning, and he is the one standing supreme after our end. That's who he is. He is the beginning 
and the end. And if you want to know why you can find a beginning in the end, it's simply that, that when the world is getting full of craziness and the world is full of trial and the world is full of trouble and the world is full of tribulation, the world is full of testing and the world is full of confusion, before all of that, in the middle of all that, and at the end of all that, God is, God was, and God will be, that Jesus is on the throne, that Jesus won the throne for you and for me. He is victorious for you and me. He won life for you and me. He has won. He will win. And that is our beginning. That's my beginning. That's your beginning. My, my beginning is not in someone winning a battle on a cosmic stage. My my, my beginning and your beginning, the beginning of my life and the beginning of your life is that Jesus went to a cross and he was victorious over sin, death, and the grave for you and for me. That's our beginning. That's the beginning that we're reminded of in the end. Now, here's the thing. Acknowledging this reality, it should actually lead us to four things. It should lead us to four to four, to four actions, to four postures, to four heart attitudes and mind attitudes. Here, here's the four things this should actually lead us to. It should lead us to humility. It should lead us to confidence. It should lead us to perseverance. And it should lead us to submission. Here's the first thing, humility. It's the understanding that I am not in control, God is. I don't have to have all the answers. God does. I am not in control. God is in control. I am not Lord. God is Lord. I am not Lord. Jesus is Lord. I can't do for myself much of what I hope to be able to do for myself, but Jesus can do for me what no one can do for me. When I get frustrated that my, that my troubles and my trials and my tribulations are, are, are not working out the way that I would want them to, I simply remember that God is in control over all of them. And what I cannot do for myself, God can do for me in a moment and an instant because he is the victorious one. And while I am humble, he is in control. He is supreme. He is supreme. I humble my life before him. I acknowledge that he is Lord and that I am not. It should lead us to confidence that I have nothing to fear because the one who is in control is with me. And if he's with me, I can face all the trouble. I can face all the trials. I can face all the tribulation. I can face any persecution. That no matter what comes my way, I know that my God is with me and I know he's in control and I know he's, in, he's the authority and I know he has all power and all authority in his, in his hands. And so I have no reason to fear. I have every reason to be confident. Not because of me, not because of my situation, but because the one who is over me and the one who is over my situation. It should lead us to humility. It should lead us to confidence. It should lead us to perseverance. That I face trials and troubles pressing on in faithfulness to God. I press on. Like when I see trials, when I see tribulations, when I face trouble, I press on through them. I press on through them in faithfulness to God. I strive to be a faithful witness that my life would testify to what Jesus did for me and who God is to me. That I want my life in the middle of trials, on my best day, on my worst day, on when I'm facing persecution, when things aren't going the way that I want at work, when things aren't going the way that I want in my family, when things aren't going the way that I want in the government, when things aren't going, any, like that through all of that, I want my life and my attitude and my actions and the way that I treat people to reflect the fact that Jesus has saved me and I am not living for myself, but I'm living for my heavenly Father. It should lead us to perseverance and finally it should lead us to submission. That I bow my whole life now to the King above all 
kings. I bow my whole life, every relationship, every interaction, every decision, every purchase, every word to the ultimate authority, the beginning and the end. I bow my life to the one who was, the one who is, and is still to come. He's been there from the beginning. He will be there at the end. He's there through it all. And I bow my life in submission that what he says goes. Where he points, I'll go. When he says, think this, I want to think this. When he says, do this, I want to do this. When his word gives me an instruction, I follow it. That I bow my life in submission and I bow my actions and my words and my thoughts and every part of me to him because he's the beginning and he's the end. See, he's the beginning and he's the end. And that's why we can find a beginning in the end. And that's just the beginning of this series. He's the one who died for you. He's the one who rose from you. He's the one who's victorious for you. He's the one who does not want this message to bring you fear and anxiety and worry. He wants it to bring, wants to bring you grace and peace in the middle of whatever you're facing. He wants to bring grace for your sin. He wants to bring peace for your trouble. He wants to do that for you because he's the God who loves you more than you could possibly know. He's the God who sent his son to be your new beginning so that before the end comes, you would have a beginning and you could know the beginning and the end. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for who you are. Thank you for your love and your grace and your peace for us. Thank you, God, that this message is not meant to be, this book of Revelation is not meant to bring us fear or anxiety or worry, but this is actually meant to draw us to you, to remind us that you are in control of the things that seem out of control, that you are in control over the trouble and the trial and the persecution and the testing and all of that that will, that will someday come, that you are in control over it all. So God, today... For some of us, maybe are watching right now, we need to make a decision to place our trust in you, to begin again, to get the new beginning that you offer us through relationship with Jesus because he won a victory for us that we couldn't win for ourselves. For some of us, we need to make that decision to trust you right now, and I pray that we would do that. And God, as we begin to study this incredible book, God, I pray that we would have wisdom to know what you want to speak to us. God, that we would have a heart open to receive the grace and the peace that you want to bring to us. And God, that we would be able to have the courage to put in practice everything you want to say to us. Help us to love you. Help us to follow you. Help us to live for you. Help us to be faithful witnesses with our lives. God, let this message lead us to humility and to confidence and to perseverance and submission. God, that we would look to you and you would be the reason and the source and the beginning and the end of everything that we do. We love you, God. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.